Revelation chapter 19. I'm going to read the text. We'll, um, we'll get to unpacking it together. So 11 is where we're beginning through to the end of the chapter. Let's hear God's word being read. Then I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood and the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword in which, with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun with a loud voice. He called to all of the birds with a loud voice that flew directly overhead, sorry. Come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of the kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of the mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders and the flesh of all men, both slave and free, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured and with it the false prophet who in its presence had done signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. This is the word of God. Would you join me in praying? Well, prepare, asking God for help. We're asking, Father, that you would, by your spirit, illuminate this word to us with the fantastic imagery that we're being shown in John's vision, there's truly a benefit for us and we want to understand. So we ask that you would apply it to our minds and hearts, that you would be with both proclaimer and hearer. Give us understanding, give us attentiveness, give us expectation that we're going to hear from you because this is your word. And we know that this happens um, in us, not because of the proclaimer, but because of your spirit. So we're asking you to work that in each of us. For the sake of Christ himself being glorified and your people being sanctified. And we ask it in his name. Amen. Well, for a moment, let's... Um, Let's talk about women's purses. <laughs> Where's he going? <laughs> I d so I had to look this up. This is an illustration. So here's, here's the question. Why does a coach purse cost between 150 and 300 and a Louis Vuitton cost between 2,000 and 5,000? Now, some of you guys have no idea what I'm talking about, uh, but women, you're with me here. I, I don't think the quality of the leather or the craftsmanship can account for the differences of the costs of these two brands. It's not there. Now, in the realm of things I do understand, so some of you may track with me here, I think there's a qualitative difference between a Kia and a Mercedes, I do. 
But let's face it, whether it's the realm of purses or automobiles or watches, uh, many other things that people buy and use, there is something, even quite a lot of value that's wrapped up in the name. Purses and cars, and they're trivial matters, of course, certainly as related to the topic at hand, but what it does, it illustrates something that we absolutely take for granted. A name can be more than merely a label to distinguish one thing from another. Particularly, relating to persons, names communicate a set of values. Names communicate priorities. They communicate character, a reputation. And that's particularly true in the Bible. And it's certainly true of God. Now, God cares deeply about his name. And he will ensure that all of creation knows it that all of creation understands what he is like. As the Lord declared through the prophet Ezekiel, referring to his plan for the future restoration of his people, he said, I will be jealous for my holy name. Well, here in our text, in, in Revelation 19, John sees the Christ, and he learns through his names. He learns that Christ acts in ways that ultimately vindicate the name of God. Now, when Christ is first revealed in Scripture, he predicted in the prophets, the first thing that we learn is that he will crush the head of the serpent. That's Genesis 3.15. But when he was born, when he lived, then died, he did fulfill what the prophet Isaiah said about him. He was despised, rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. When Jesus, the week before he was crucified, in fulfillment, ultimately, of the prophet Isaiah. He came into Jerusalem on a young donkey. He fulfilled that prophecy as prince of peace, Isaiah 9.6. He entered the city of peace, gentle, mounted on a donkey, as the only one through whom peace with God would even be possible. Now, I say all that because it's a, vividly stark contrast from what we see here in Revelation 19. You see, at this point in the story, and this is at the end of history, I take it, this is at the return of Christ, the time for peace is past. We're told, and John sees, he will come back to judge and to make war. And instead of riding on a donkey, He's riding on a white horse. So what are we going to learn here about the names of Christ? And I'll tell you what I think uh, these names mean, and we'll get to the names in a moment. But here's three things that I see in this text relating to the three names. First of all, what we learn about Christ is he acts righteously. We can expect him to act righteously when he returns. Secondly, this has been true of of the Christ from the beginning, but he acts with power. And third, he acts perfectly. 
he acts perfectly. Well, that first name that we see in the text, that he is called faithful and true. Faithful and true. Now, like most wars in the world, Israel's decision recently to go to war with Hamas, that was preceded by a judgment. A judgment on Israel's part. Israel, the nation, decided that the murderous and inhumane acts on Israeli non-combatants, the IDF, the Israel Defense Force, they determined that they needed to act in order to protect its citizens and its borders. That was a judgment. And Israel declared its intention, you've seen this in the news, to eliminate Hamas. And if they would fail to do so, I, I would take it that it would be on their part a failure of mission and, and really an abandonment of their citizens. Israel believes that they have a true and righteous cause and they intend to faithfully defend their people. War is preceded by a judgment. We're going to war because we think what you have done is evil. We are going to war because we think that land belongs to us. We're going to war because, fill in the blank, war is preceded by judgment. Now that Christ would return to judge, that's certainly a recurring theme in Scripture. Psalm 9. Both Old and New Testaments, by the way. But the Lord sits, this is Psalm 9, 7, 8. But the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice. And he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the people with uprightness. James 4.12 says that there is only one lawgiver and judge. He who is able to save and destroy. And Paul preaching at the Areopagus finished his appeal by saying this, summarizing his sermon. He has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. That is the Christ. So in our text, we see that, that Christ is faithful to his people to vindicate them. He is faithful to vindicate the name of God. And he's faithful to to fulfill ultimately what the scripture says about him and his judgment about the enemy of his people is a true judgment he is faithful and true now earlier in the chapter we saw that this was a, a cause for for great rejoicing in heaven for this for his it says back in in chapter earlier part of chapter uh, of 19 verse 2 it says for his judgment or true and just, for he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants. And we're told in, in the section that we read, in verse 12, that his, his eyes are like a flame of fire, which, which I take it to mean that he judges righteously because there isn't anything hidden from him. His eyes pierce through. Nothing at all is hidden. He knows the hearts of his people. He sees through hypocrisy and fakery. And we're told as well that on his head are many diadems and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. Then he is clothed with a, a robe dipped in blood. This faithful and true rider of the horse, this Christ. Now these diadems on his head, I, I take it, are, are representative of the nations, the people that he sovereignly rules over. And, and here, again, there are so many allusions to the prophets in this imagery that John sees. Isaiah 62 
The nations shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory and you shall be called by a new name. A name that the mouth of the Lord will give. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no more be termed forsaken and your land shall no more be termed desolate. But, but you shall be called my delight is in her and your land married. See, I think verse 12 is, the intent here is to show that in, in a contrast to the counterfeit of Christ, which is the beast, that's back in chapter 13, verse 1, we saw there that the beast had 10 diadems. But the, he acquired these, these, this authority, this rule through, through seduction. See, the beast thinks that he has sovereignty, oh, but that's temporary. The beast, again, has blasphemous names, and the people that are his own, the, the ones who carry his mark, they likewise blaspheme the Lord, but ultimately, they are doomed. But here, here in, in 19, Christ has many diadems. He is the true sovereign over his people, acquired through his own sacrifice. He is the one who has the right. He is faithful and true to judge. And, and perhaps that's why his, his robe is depicted as dipped in blood. And we're told that they have a new name that only he knows. And I take it that's when the marriage is complete. Again, back in allusion to, to the, the prophet Isaiah. See, Christ is faithful and true. He's faithful and true to carry out his judgments on the wicked, but he is faithful and true to gather to himself his people. He acts righteously towards his enemies, ultimately to destroy them. And he's true to his word to bring his own people to himself. I want to remind you what, what, what Jesus promised to his disciples in John 14. He told them, and this, this, this flows to us as well as, as his present day disciples. He said to them and to us, believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go, and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Now at the time, I take it that the disciples really didn't know or understand when Jesus made this promise what he would have to do to secure it, right? What would he do to secure it? And I think that's what's revealed here in, in 19. He's faithful and true. He's faithful to vindicate his name. He's faithful to vindicate his own people who've trusted in him. Jesus is faithful to his people to suffer the wrath of God for our sin. Eternally faithful. He's faithful to his own people to guard them from Satan. He's faithful to you if you are in Christ today to guard your soul from Satan. He's faithful and he's true. Second Thessalonians tells us the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. That's a promise. And knowing that Christ is faithful, he is faithful to you and me to bring us through temptation, to bring us through suffering and persecution, and ultimately to be with him forever. He is faithful 
and true. The writer, uh, the Apostle Paul in Philippians says, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you, and this is about Christ's faithfulness, will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus, and that's the day I take as depicted here. He's gonna bring you to completion at the day of his return. Well, the second name we see is the word of God. The word of God. Now, I think only some of you here are old enough to remember this advertising campaign. It was by the brokerage firm E.F. Hutton. They've since been acquired by Lehman Brothers. Anyway, the commercials usually depicted a couple of friends. And what they were doing is they're talking about their investment advice, right? And one of them would say, well, my broker is E.F. Hutton. At which point in the commercial, everyone in the proximity of those two would stop what they're doing, lean in, and listen. Kind of an absurd thing, but they were trying to make the point because what the tagline was this. When E.F. When e. Hutton talks, people listen. Their advice is so good. Well, we know this. There are a lot of voices in the world that can command an audience. Lots of voices. And you know this. If the, the president makes an Oval Office address, everyone covers it. The news will be there. It'll be on TV. But we also know this. Even the most authoritative voices in the world, whether it's Buffett on investments today or some powerful political leader, they can only speak in a way that's aspirational, right? They can speak aspirationally. Even, even if they have all the bravado and confidence that they think they're going to carry through the thing that they're saying, it's really aspirational. They actually have no power to actualize what they declare. Now, when John sees the, the rider on the white horse, if it has not been obvious to the reader at this point, it should be obvious now. The name by which he is called is the Word of God. It should be obvious that this is the Christ. And as the Word of God, he speaks with power. He speaks with absolute power. Now, whether people listen or not, when Christ speaks, that thing is. There's no separation between the declaration of Christ and the thing happening. Whether There may be some time but the thing that Christ declares is. There isn't any getting away from that, which is to say, it cannot not be. Now, at this point, we might be reminded what John wrote about, about uh, the Christ when he introduced Jesus in his gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Christ, the, the living word of God, is the, the, the embodied actualization of the will of God. Think about that. Christ, as the living word of God, is the embodied actualization of the will of God. Now, I'm not taking away his personhood, but the will of God is fully worked out in the word of Christ. Again, no separation. We're told that all, ex uh, all creation exists through his agency. Phil prayed this. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth. It just tells you that this word of Christ, being Christ himself being the word of God, this is a, a power like no other power. So we, we come back to John's vision. Following Christ are the, these armies of heaven. 
in like manner, they are also on white horses, implying that, that he commands all, all the authorities to do his bidding. Now, I ask the question, are they heavenly messengers like angels or saints? It's not absolutely clear, but, but I can imagine that this is the, the, the company of, of people who, who at the resurrection, those who are alive and remain, taken up with him in the air, the dead in Christ rise first, join him, and they're coming back to observe his victory. But see something in the way, way, the way it is. Again, I, I would take it that these are saints because they're arrayed in fine linen, indicating that the righteousness that they have has been purchased by Christ. But, but notice here in this war, on the good side, on the Christ side, the, the lone combatant is Christ himself. His own army really is observing as Christ has that sharp sword in his mouth. See, that the word of, of God judges like a sword, and I think that's what the imagery here is, right? An allusion back to the prophets again, Isaiah 49.2, where the Lord's servant pointed them, pointing to the Messiah. It says of him, he made my mouth like a sharp sword. That's a judging word. And both the apostle Paul and, and the writer of Hebrews employ the same imagery uh, of sword being the word of Christ as that metaphor the sword of the spirit, that's Ephesians 6, 17, which according to Hebrews 4, 12, that's living and active such that it pierces the core of our being. That word that saves and sanctify Jesus' own, right? That word, that's that same word that will judge and condemn those who are not his own. And that, the sharp sword of the word of Christ that judges, that will be no different than the word we have bound in our hands, our Bibles. It's no different. For those who are judged, it will be a word that they have heard before, but a word that they rejected because of unbelief. Now, Jesus warned that this would happen. Recorded in the Gospel of John, Jesus said this, the one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. Now we can fast forward to the end. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. The word's already been said. The word we have in the scriptures, the word about Christ, is the word that they will hear. And all of those forces that are allied with the beast, that is to say Babylon, those who have persecuted and killed the people of God with physical weapons of war, but when Jesus returns to defeat his enemies, enemies and the enemies of his saints, he will not lift a finger. He, he won't need to rally any troops or, or employ a navy or an army or an air force or a space force or some future force. It's unnecessary. Now, he, what he will do is he will stand alone with his people behind him and he will speak. He will say what he has said before and his enemies, by that word, will be defeated and he will fulfill what the Lord declared about him through David. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel, all with his word so 
again. By his word, just a word, he will strike down the nations and he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. Again, an allusion to Isaiah 63. So what do we make of this? It's the very understanding of who Christ is. He acts with power through his word. That's all that's needed to destroy his enemies. And brothers and sisters in Christ, that, that should be a great comfort to us as well because the very nature of his word defeating his enemies means that, that, that Christ does not have a difficult task before him. It's not a battle at the end of some kind of equals. Remember, by his, by his word, the, the whole universe came into existence, right? And by his word, those who have corrupted it will be destroyed. So, so listen, when you, when you seek to hear the word, the scriptures, when you seek to read the word, to heed the word, you are honoring Christ himself. When we declare the word of God, we're declaring Christ whose word it is. When we obey the word of God, we are obeying Christ whose word it is. When we cherish the word of God, we are cherishing Christ whose word it is. If you run from Christ, his word will rebuke you and correct you. At times when you're unsure, the word of Christ will give you wisdom. If you find yourself in fear, the word of Christ will give you courage. And if you rebel against God and are determined to stay that way, it will be the word of God that will condemn you. We don't take lightly the word of God. I, when we honor the word of God, we honor Christ whose word it is. And that word is a powerful word. Let's not undervalue it. Not that any of you do. Well, the last name that we see in this is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And from that I take it that he acts perfectly. He acts perfectly. And I'll explain what I mean. Uh, several months ago, Kathy and I were in a store buying some clothes and the, and the young lady at the checkout needed some information in order to complete the sale. So, you know, they ask those questions. Did you find everything where you were looking for? I, I said, yes. And she said, perfect. She said, then, what's a good email? I told her again, and she responded, perfect. And at this point, I was wondering if an email address has a moral component to it. I wasn't sure. Then she said, what's a good phone number? And I told her, and again, she said, perfect. Now, I have no complaint about her service or anything like that. You could say she was perfectly pleasant and helpful. But I wondered at that moment, did she really understand what the word perfect means? And I do that. When I hear people use words, I go, you keep saying that word. You, you know, going all princess bride, you know? <laughs> do, do you know what that means? And I think maybe she was saying, thank you. But maybe on further reflection, perhaps she was truly telling me that my answers were absolutely flawless. But again, flawless, and that's how we often use the word, perfect, as in flawless. But there is another sense. It's very much related to the word perfect. As an adjective, it's that which is complete or absolute. 
meaning that nothing more can be done. There, there are no loose ends. There's absolute harmony. It's complete, perfect. Now, we see, verse 16, John sees this rider, the Christ, on a robe and on his thigh has the name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and that's also on his robe. Again, the thigh, uh, why there? Uh, it's where the warrior would strap a sword, right? But, but the sword of this, this king of kings and lord of lords is his commanding word. But what this tells us is that he is the ultimate king, the perfect king, the complete king, the final absolute master before whom every other so-called smaller master must bow. As king of kings and lord of lords, he is the totality, the absolute of kings and masters. And because that is true of who he is, he judges perfectly, which is to say, not just flawlessly, but completely. Nothing more needs to be done on his judgment. It's, nothing's left undone. You know, uh, in, in, um, in our legal system, somebody's convicted of a crime, and maybe they get a plea deal. And it's like, well the best we could do and it never feels quite right rarely i mean it does happen rarely are trials conducted where where everybody says you know what justice has been completely done and it's all great but it always feels like a little bit's off but as it regards the king of kings and lord of lords nothing at all is left undone christ brings this judgment to completion which is to say perfection and what does that look like and we're told the beast, and I take it, which is Babylon. And again, that Babylon, I think, is the spirit of the Antichrist that, that finds its way to collect um, and, and amass cultural, economic, political power into a single place, which is focused on self-exaltation, idolatry, corrupting people's minds and hearts. That's what I take that. So the beast and the nations of the earth that have devoured creation, the nations of the earth that have corrupted uh, sorry, Babylon, that have corrupted creation and corrupted people with idolatry, they themselves will be devoured. And, and, and there's this one, this figure, like an angel standing in the sun. He's calling with a loud voice and he is announcing something. And of course, this is at behest of the king of kings. This would not happen apart from him. So the birds here are called to feast on the slain, the kings, the captains, the mighty men, horses, riders, all men, slave and free, everyone great and small. And these are those whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb that was slain. And these are now slain. It becomes this massive feast for the birds. And this is very much similar language to Ezekiel 39, 17 through 20. You can look that up. There, Gog, the chief prince of Meshech and Tubal, and his entire army will be defeated by the Lord. So here, the beast and the false prophet so that they have been devoured by the birds, okay? Now we move to the beast and the false prophet. These are the power structures and the spirit of the Antichrist. They are now captured. They are cast into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. This is the only just retribution for deceiving many to take the mark of the beast and to, to throw in their lot with Babylon. And they are cast alive. They're cast alive, and it implies, I, I take it, that they remain alive. And what we take from this is that with this judgment on the beast and the false prophet, 
Judgment is complete. They're cast into the lake of fire. Chapter 20, verse 10 tells us where they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Nothing more needs to be done. It will be over. It is complete. The King of kings and Lord of lords has acted with finality and perfection. And understand that while it's the beast and the false prophet being thrown in there, this is the same judgment that Jesus described in Matthew chapter 25 where on his right were those whose faith in him was proved out in love for others, but those on his left were the unrighteous. And so it's not just the beast and the false prophet that are destined, but those who have not. And this is ominous. I get it. This scene is ominous, and it's, it's cause for rejoicing because God's people will be vindicated, but for those who have rejected him, it's a horrifying scene. Jesus said at that time, then, they w- then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Because Jesus' first advent led to the cross in the gospels, we do get a true picture of Jesus as a suffering servant, the one who came to his own, who his own people rejected, the one who humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. That's Philippians 2. He did that. He did that for all who would trust in him. He there at the cross suffered the wrath of God for your sin in your place if you believe it. And that's if you believe it. God's wrath poured out on the Son for you if you put your faith in Him. But if you don't, if you reject Him, you will be cast into the lake of fire. But indeed, because He did die for you, because He did humble Himself for you, because He received God's judgment on your behalf and brought you to Himself, The Father sees that. And as a result, this one who is faithful and true, this one who is the word of God, this one who is king of kings and lord of lords, because of that, the Father has bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that as a result of that, at his name, the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So friends, listen, this, the sovereign King of kings and Lord of lords, he can be sovereign over you. You can acknowledge that and bow or he will be your judge. So brothers and sisters in Christ, what are we called to do as a result of this? We're called to live in submission to the Lord Jesus. Knowing that he he acts righteously, he acts with power, and he acts in a way that, that is complete. Nothing is left undone. And because of that, we're called to live in constant submission to Jesus. And we do that by, by opening our Bibles and, and asking God to cause us to be obedient to the word. We do that by gathering together like this so that we can remind each other who Jesus is and what he's accomplished for us. 
We do that when we gather in small groups and share about the word of God. We, we do that when we pray, God, make me like Jesus in character. I want to be an imitator of God as a beloved child. Well, when John, what John saw and what we see in the scripture is a picture of Christ and his triumph over evil. Again, because he is faithful and true, he acts righteously. Because he is the word of God, he acts with power, and that's glorious. And because he's king of kings and lord of lords, he acts perfectly. This is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Messiah, the one depicted as the, the judge at the end of time. And it's my prayer that if indeed the armies that are behind him are those whose, whose blood covered their sin and made us righteous, I, I believe that to be the case. I, I pray that you are among them. Look forward to that day. Things around us will decay, I think, in the next season. They'll look like they're getting worse and we may endure some persecution. I think that's what the warning in Revelation is. But John, I think, has been given this vision and, and has been given to us so that we can look to the end, so that we can see what's going to happen at the end, so that we can triumph, in we can anticipate the triumph of that day when he returns. May God grant us grace every day for faithful endurance as we wait for that day of his glorious appearing. Let's pray. Father, uh, two different images of your son, bruised and beaten and rejected and crushed servant and glorious, all-powerful, almighty judge God, we are grateful as your people that our sin has already been judged at the cross of your Son. Lord, keep us faithful to proclaim his kingship in this time so that those you are calling to yourself may hear and be included on that glorious day of his return. Father, keep us faithful for the glory of Jesus in our individual lives and among us as a church. And we pray it in his name. Amen.